With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. All right. This is episode two with Chris Benko from Connexa Health. Welcome, everyone, to our second podcast in the podcast series for leaders in the pharmaceutical industry from sponsor and provider companies um, that are engaged in, in clinical outsourcing in some capacity. Today, I'm here with Chris Benko, CEO of Connexa Health, and uh, I'm going to leave it to Chris to actually introduce himself um, and introduce Connexa, but I will say this is an interesting, um, this will be an interesting episode because we have a perspective here from someone who and an organization who is at the forefront of bringing innovation to clinical um, clinical research, and that's a topic that's come up um, throughout the lectures and throughout the discussion board about how to how outsourcing can, can play um, into driving innovation or can sometimes be even a, a hindrance to innovation depending on how we leverage it. So um, I think this will be an interesting one, and I you know I, I look forward to the conversation. Chris, with that, um, you have. A really interesting. You've taken a really interesting path to get to where you are now at the helm of uh, of the Connexa ship. So, could you kind of give us a, a brief recap of your background and, and kind of how you, where you came from and, and how you ended up at Connexa, and then maybe take us through a bit about Connexa and you know the journey you've been on with that organization. Sure. Thanks for having me, Dennis. It's uh, great to have an opportunity to speak to this class and to catch up with you. Um, so I started in the pharmaceutical industry in 1995, uh, working for Merck originally as an undergraduate intern uh, in the information technology group. Um, it was a fantastic time to be involved with technology. It was really just at the point when um, you know, the Internet was something that was coming to people's desktop computers and in an office environment. It seems kind of hard to imagine um, when, when we think about where we are today, but it was really sort of a revolutionary point in time uh, prior to the technology bubble. I, we got to experience it on its rise and, and on its collapse. Um, I spent ultimately uh, six or seven years uh, growing up through the technology organization um, in a variety of different roles, um, but really reached a career inflection point um, where, you know, I, as much as I had, had been learning and engaged in what I was doing, but when I was ready to get some, some different experience and, and broaden as a business person. Um, so I actually moved into uh, part of the human resources organization um, focused on organizational development and learning. Um, which, which is a kind of an interesting detour and, and probably not, not a common one, but really driven by the opportunity to work for someone who is a tremendous mentor to me. Um, from there, I ended up having the opportunity to get to work more closely with Merck's research labs. And uh, I had the perspective from being in the company that it was really the most important part of the organization that, that created value for patients and value for the company overall. And uh, had the opportunity to go be the head of HR for um, the the what were called the research franchises, and really looking over this new operating model for um, Target through Phase Two B, and looking at how do we bring in translational medicine capabilities, biomarker capabilities, and make that an integral part of of drug development to make smarter decisions. 
Um, and that experience has actually been very formative in how I think about what we do with Conexa, um, which I'll get to in a minute. But it has a lot to do with um, how do you study and measure things in such a way that you're on creating ongoing learning about the drug development process, but also you, using new technologies and, and new methods that are at your disposal um, to be able to make decisions in a more rapid or effective way. Um, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to work on a lot of the due diligence and integration for a number of, of Merck's um, mergers and acquisitions, ranging from very small all the way up through leading the people and culture integration for the, the merger between Merck and Sharing Plow. And um, from that experience, was asked to be the head of global talent management for the company for a number of years. So that's the set of HR functions um, that oversee things like recruiting, learning and development, diversity, succession planning. Um, and after you know, fantastic three years doing that, uh, I was really ready to look at a new chapter in my career and and get much closer to doing something um, more operational and and to go to a place where I felt like I could have more direct impact on on patients and the way in which we get medicine to patients. Fortunately, Merck has a, uh, a venture capital fund that invests in digital health companies, and I had the opportunity to go work for that fund. And they were the, the seed support and the initial incubator for Conexa, which is the company I've been running for the past three years. So, you know, in a nutshell, um, what Conexa does is we are a, a software company with some supporting services that's focused on how to improve clinical development through incorporating new technologies. And the specific problems that we're aiming to solve, um, one is can we make um, earlier decisions or decisions using smaller number of patients by incorporating different kinds of measurements that can be taken from them in the real world or even continuously that complement what you might measure in a clinic. So our software platform is designed to integrate things like clinical grade wearable devices that might track your vital signs, your activity, your sleep, um, or other remote measurement tools like spirometers for pulmonary function tests, scales, or other instruments that can take a measurement um, from a patient in their home environment. And we've successfully used those kinds of measurement models and validated them against in-clinic equivalents to help us make much smaller, um, use much smaller sample sizes to get indications of whether or not drugs are working. The other problem that we work on is how to make endpoints more, uh, the term we use is ecologically relevant. So when you're observing a patient in the real world, you have a better opportunity to understand their functional status. And that's increasingly important to regulators and payers. And of course, it's important to patients. Patients care much more about what's going on when they're in their natural environment um, than the few times when they might be in the doctor's office or in a clinic. And so there's um, important methods to how do you measure, assess, and understand patients in their natural environment. And we see them becoming uh, increasingly a fixture of, of how we think about representing uh, the way in which drugs work and add value for patients. Excellent. Excellent. I mean, this is, this is completely um, aligned with where we started the class. So we, we started with a discussion around externalities, things that were impacting, you know, the, the industry, impacting drug development, and impacting clinical outsourcing as a result of that. Some of the things you hit upon, um, the increasing bar, you know, for um, value-based medicines, you know, from, from third-party payers, from government, um, the increasing bar for safety and efficacy that's that just the market demands. And, uh, you know, and some of the new ways we have to generate um, information about how our drugs perform in, in patients, you know, vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the, um, passive data collection through wearables or through other environmental measurements, things like that. Um, those are all things that I think that the class brought up and that we discussed a little bit in more detail through the, uh, through the lecture material. So that's, this is directly in line with, uh, with where I think 
um, the class's head is at in terms of what you know what are these new capabilities that we may be looking for uh, solutions providers for and how do we work with them you know in this kind of new world of, and, and new types of data we now need to consider in drug development. Well, that's exciting. I'm glad to know that there's interest in in what we do from from even more people in the market, and it's uh, an area where I have a lot of passion. So I look forward to talking about it more. Right. Great. Now, could you share a bit? So, Connect has been in, you know been in business um, approximately three years. Um, you mentioned. So, can you give us an idea, you know, kind of size, scope, and, and a little bit about what that journey was like um, starting up a, a you know a firm in the pharmaceutical industry in our kind of highly regulated, highly, you know, kind of competitive environment within pharma. You know, could you share your thoughts on, on how that journey was? Yeah, you know, so t- today, today Conexa has, has worked with about a thousand patients worth of data, more than a dozen um, studies that you could find on clinicaltrials.gov. Um, we, we've worked with more than half a dozen uh, pharmaceutical and biotech clients with whom we have master agreements and in almost every case have done multiple studies with those customers. That'll probably be 10 or 12 by the end of the year. Um, and so we are, you know, constantly enrolling new sites and studies and continuing to grow as a business, which has been fantastic. But um, it literally started from, uh, you know, slide deck and concept. So I've, I've spent really the first six months of my journey into this, trying to get my head around the various options and opportunities for the business plan. And I think probably more importantly, recruiting my two co-founders uh, who brought a lot to the table in terms of experiences that were complementary to mine, not only from the standpoint of their technical skills, but also their experience working in startups. Um, because I, having grown up in a big company, had a lot of blind spots in terms of what does it really mean to create something from nothing? And how do you operate a company um, from scratch? How do you operate a company that's, that's very small? The flip side is I did have the experience and context of a big company, um, the com- kind of companies that would ultimately become our customers. Uh, and that's obviously very, very important as well in terms of knowing what their expectations are. Uh, the first studies that we actually did with our prototype level technology well, if I'm really going to wind the tape all the way back, you know, the very, very first kind of interface that we had with any kind of patients was as simple as getting some product feedback from people we recruited over Craigslist uh, who were willing to take um, a blood glucose readings with a, a glucometer that was Bluetooth enabled and connected uh, and then engage with our platform just to contribute their readings and understand the overall user experience with the software. And that, that kind of ground level sort of scrappy testing is the thing that startups do and, and gives us our first taste of what does it really mean to interact with people who are, who are patients who would be using our technology. From there, our next customers were academic and uh, that's relatively natural. It's I would think very, very hard to go straight from being a a startup entity right into working in an industry-sponsored clinical trial. The the barriers and requirements and regulatory issues are just far too high. So our first proving ground, although our customers were paying, I would say I'm using that term very generously. I, I personally believe it's important uh, if you're going to really establish the kind of relationship and feedback that that you want to get as an early stage company to get paid as opposed to doing something for free, even if it's very little money. And so it was very little money, um, but there was a contract, there was an expectation in the relationship that we were the service provider and had to deliver. Um, So we initially did some work with Massachusetts General Hospital. um, We did some work with the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. And some of those relationships continue. 
and they're a fantastic experience in working in quality improvement programs or in uh, clinical research studies that were academic-sponsored, where the barriers in terms of what they're trying to prove or regulatory claims are, are not there. So obviously, patient safety and confidentiality and all those protections are equally important, but they're not worried about submitting a, a, a package to the FDA. And so that was an important area for us to gain initial credibility and experience as we built up the capabilities that would ultimately be required to serve um, the pharmaceutical and biotech studies where the, the regulatory issues are incredibly important and have become an important part of how we're able to differentiate ourselves. Okay. Yeah, no, so, so I'm curious then now, you know, you're at this point where, you know, you've done your, your customer-centered research, you know, you've gotten that patient feedback, you've worked with, you know, you've kind of taken that prototype to the next level now with, with the, you know, in an academic setting. When you, when you were looking to break into the pharmaceutical industry, into, you know, working with sponsors and or, you know, CROs, um, where they do have some of those obligations, I'm curious, you know, how, you know, when you step back and you think about it, the procurement process we go through in pharma, the way that, you know, the kind of the channels we have to work through to be able to do business together. Would you say, you know, were those, were those enabling you to, to kind of grow and, and, and bring some of the innovation you have to, you know, the, to the hands of pharma, to the trials they were seeking um, to execute and the things they were trying to achieve? Or, you know, or in some ways, was this a hindrance or, you know, or was it both? What was the experience now when you then took that leap? Yeah, it's a great question, Dennis. It's been both. Yeah, I, we've seen multiple modalities here. So particularly since we've had some experience and we've had some press and public exposure, we've had procurement organizations reach out and contact us because they recognize we, we fit something they're looking for, um, or maybe not always procurement organizations. Sometimes it's other individuals at a sponsor who've identified us in one way or another, but where the initial process has essentially just been a standard RFI or RFP process. And in those cases, we're certainly very grateful that we have sourcing professionals who are out there looking for solutions and really thinking about who on the landscape might might match that and they're, they're doing their homework and they're coming across companies like us and we've been successful in some of those RFPs and we've been unsuccessful in others. Uh, but, but we've seen many of them, you know, very professionally and well run and you know, others that have room for improvement. Um, in other cases, you know, my, my experience in the industry and particularly working in the translational and early space with a lot of great clinicians means that I have a pretty good network of, of colleagues who um, know of us, who, who know me personally and whom I know. And, you know, my view um, and, and kind of philosophically where, where we're at as a business, and a lot of this comes from my experience, though, looking at kind of the early efforts to get development teams to incorporate biomarker plans and things. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, there's a person who puts their name on the clinical protocol. Um, there's, a, there's a medical monitor, and they're, they're, they're signing up for this, and it's posted on clinicaltrials.gov. And I think probably most of you who work in clinical research know that that person is really the most important stakeholder and decision maker in developing that study. And it's really important to know that you're doing something that is aligned with that person's interest. Uh, so I, it's important to me to know that our work is, is serving the people who run these drug development teams. So what that means is we work really hard to build relationships and connections with those people, understand their needs, and make sure we're delivering something that's going to really support them and helping them either advance their program or ad- advance kind of the overall clinical development paradigm in which they're working. So what sometimes happens is if our relationship or connection starts there, 
procurement can be brought in later on to sort of manage the financial or contracting process. Um, and, and sometimes they're an enabler there. In, in other times, it creates attention. Uh, there, there's often attention when somebody has sort of picked a vendor or a solution or partner and goes to procurement and then says, just make it happen. Uh, and so we, we can run into a little bit of awkwardness when, when that occurs. In some cases, the dollar value or the amount or the unique nature of what we're doing causes them to just say, yeah, we'll, we'll facilitate this and get it done. Um, and in some cases, there's a little bit more tension. You know, they, the procurement can feel like they were left out. Uh, or maybe is confused about really how to even think about us relative to other options. So I, I can't say that we haven't been slowed down from time to time or had some, some tough interactions there, but we've never had anything too terrible. Interesting. I mean, you hit upon a, a key point that, that actually commanded quite a bit of discussion um, in the discussion boards for the class and that we, we focused on um, as a thread throughout the, the course. Um, and it's, it's really around those relationships. You highlighted the, the importance of having relationships with those those folks at the, you know, with the authority and the accountabilities around the, the development program and making sure you solidify those and you're, you're speaking to their needs. Um, one of the things we spend a lot of time talking about is just different partnering models, different, you know, outsourcing strategies, different relationship types, um, you know, and how those, how those basically influence, you know, the, the achievement of different outcomes. So I'm curious, you know, in your experience, um, you know, how do you move beyond sort of the transactional, you know, I, wanna, I don't want to say procurement driven, but a lot of times like the transactional relationships, kind of fee for service type relationships into something that is more, um, which is what I think you were describing, more of a strategic relationship, one that, you know, that really is focused on outcomes and focused on the true needs of the, the customer and the program. Well, part, you know, part of it for us is making sure that we, we are really comfortable pushing back on, uh, on, on sponsors or requests to make sure that we get underneath what it is they're really trying to solve for. Uh, because, you know, we get, we get some requests that I think are very sophisticated and well thought through, others that are not. And I think very often building toward what some of our collective overall objectives are requires that there's a broader strategic relationship. So what I mean by that is if, if I were to pick on, let's just say the, the kind of worst case scenario, somebody says they want to use a device in a clinical trial. And sometimes it's because somebody has an innovation budget or group or objective. And it's not always clearly connected to what's the problem that we're solving. How will this help us? You know, would we ever actually use this data or this analysis to make a different decision about whether or not to advance a drug? Do we think that this might support a regulatory claim or argument? Uh, and, and if those questions aren't thought through, you know, we, we, we actually have to take a step back and say we don't want to be affiliated with projects that are uh, not going to clearly add value for the sponsor. And I think those of you who've been in pharma and biotech know that, you know, it is still an industry with generous margins and where people get budgets to go do things that aren't, aren't fully thought through. So we, we've seen that and we either shy away from it or we push back and we ask, you know, a couple questions deep to say, what is it that you really want? What are you really trying to accomplish? Sometimes that's a little bit awkward, but in other times it helps us flesh out you know, what, what the needs are of, of, of the sponsor and how do we kind of build a, a broader relationship. In a lot of cases, if you're thinking about developing a new endpoint or a new model, that requires multiple studies. It requires a lot of foresight, sequencing. And so we have customers where we'll say, okay, let's, let's step back, let's do an observational study, validate our methods together, and then figure out how to roll into your early 
um, dose escalation study or proof of concept study so that we de-risk things and create more confidence that we're going to be able to answer questions conclusively. And, and that means sort of signing up formally or informally to work across a program in multiple studies, not just to do things transactionally one-off and say, oh, support this here, support that there. So it's really kind of digging into what's the problem we're trying to solve, what's it going to take to solve it. And I think very often what we found that's been helpful for us is when our customers appreciate that we, we bring a lot of know-how to the table on that, uh, they, they tend to be very receptive to en engaging in that way. Now, that's not to say I haven't seen some RFPs that came through where you know they had thought all this stuff through really, really well, and we were able to kind of fill in, here's how we would solve it for you, and, and that's okay too. But in an, in an emerging field, I would say that is less common. It is more common that the you know, the starting request that we get needs some reframing before it really gets to be what we consider to be a, a strong project. Let me ask a follow-on to that because this is interesting. Um, and, I, and I'm thinking about especially some of the colleagues in the class that are, that are working for provider organizations, that are working for CROs, I think they can relate strongly to, to, to what you're describing. Can you tease out or can you think about what are those, you know, what are the key elements that have to be present in order to have those very candid conversations? Because as you acknowledge, you know, it can be a little bit awkward. Um, you have to, you may have to push back on a, on a client to really get to the heart of what they need. But there's, there's probably a level of, um, or trust or other elements that have to be there. How, what have you found to be effective in, in establishing a relationship that will allow you to do that pushback with your clients and really get to the heart of their, their true needs and objectives? Yeah, you know, both parties have to be willing to bring the right people to the table. So uh, I, you know, I'm obviously I'm the CEO of my company, so I, I know a lot about what we do, but I also have a tendency to bring in, um, for example, the people on my team who spend the most time with you know, customers and operational sites or our head of data science who um, leads a lot of the design and analysis work. I, I, I bring the kind of the, the technical or subject matter experts to the table whenever I can um, so that it's not just me in sort of sales mode and not that I can't get technical, but I, I find that the particularly when we have the opportunity and the access to talk to the scientists and the people developing the studies, they're, they're not interested in a sales pitch. They want to understand and engage very technically uh, or operationally around what we're doing. And so uh, that, that's important from our side. And I remember this going way back to my days as a technologist at Merck. I didn't want to talk to my account manager at Cisco. I mean, I, I, sure, sometimes. I really wanted to talk to the sales engineer who was super deep and could go toe-to-toe -to -toe on, on complex issues. And, and I've, I've realized that in our own process, bringing, bringing the, the experts to the table and spending the time, and, and it is their, our, our most expensive resources, but bringing them out is important. Now, the flip side from the sponsor standpoint is you've got to provide the right level of access. There are cases where the sourcing professionals I'm dealing with are, you know, PhD scientists who are quite deep in what they do, although they typically still, they know how to bring together the right experts. When you get someone who's more of a process facilitator, maybe a little bit more junior, maybe a little less experienced, that's fine as long as they're willing to provide the right level of access and dialogue. If they want to manage everything over email, if they're insistent on being the intermediary to all of these issues, it's really unlikely that we're going to get a healthy level of communication. And so again, unless that RFP comes across like brilliantly thought through, um, having to do a lot of uh, a lot of transactional email-based uh, conversation to sort out what's going on, that's that's not going to achieve the the right result. You know, it's not even just about tr trust is important, as you said, but 
part of kind of the under on the level underneath trust is really understanding each other's capabilities and and you just have to have richer uh dialogue with the right people in order to make that happen good advice good advice for the class i think there's a lot in there that you know that, that people can use when they're thinking about when they're engaging in these sorts of act you know these sorts of activities from either side um and I would think, I mean, you know, you tell me, so, you know, we, we spoke a bit during the, during the class about the qualification process. And one of the things that actually surfaced in the discussion from, um, from some of the students was just that there are emerging services like I think Actigraphy and, you know, and other sorts of data sources that you described um, that are a little bit atypical that might not fit inside the usual qualification um, box. And so would, would those same conversations, those same strategies that you just described in terms of, you know, of having um, the right people at the table and such. Do those translate as well when you get further down the line, when you're being, you know, when you're getting, um, going through qualification, having on-site visits, you know, those sorts of things, you know, how does, what would be your advice to, to, to both sponsors and potentially future entrepreneurs around that, around how to, how to navigate that part of the, of the onboarding process when you're past, you know, kind of the procurement stage and now into the, the qualification stage? Yeah, this is so important, uh, and this is so central to the stuff that I think about almost every day. Uh, is how do how do you do this well? I think that kind of uh, I'm going to give you kind of a t attention, if you will, that that guides this conversation. Um, I had a conversation a while back with one of our, our customers is Takeda, and we've talked about that publicly uh, in press releases and things. And Eric Paraxilis, who's uh, fantastic, he was the CIO at the FDA, and he oversees uh, a lot of the, the technology and statistical and genomic functions at, at Takeda. He influenced me strongly on this, and I'll, I'll paraphrase a kind of a sports analogy, which is practice like you play, play like you practice. And what that means is I don't think that because something's an emerging technology and let's say may not be really contributing officially to any of your submissions or files, it may be, let's just say, exploratory, right? Um, that doesn't mean that you should sort of treat it as something completely casual. We've seen companies go and take Fitbits and put them in clinical trials under the guise of, well, it's exploratory and kind of ignore the qualification process. It, it's very hard to go from there to the next stage and do something that's much more robust. You just There's so little that you can actually take away from that learning if you didn't pay any attention to how to do things in a way that would stand the test of a regulatory submission. So in many cases, it's not even really a useful learning step. And that's what I mean by practice like you play, play like you practice. And we've had customers influence us strongly, like Takeda, in that direction to say, even when we might be doing things that are exploratory, we should be doing them as closely as possible as though they were going to to be used uh, in a regulatory submission. Now, let me give you the other end of that. You've you got to be realistic, and that's why I say as close as possible, but it's, it's not always possible to be perfect. There are a lot of interesting emerging technologies out there that might be research grade, that might be awaiting their FDA 510K clearance. Um, a lot of device technologies, you know, they're, they're not subject to the same rules and validation that, that you would think of if you're used to the pharmaceutical industry. So the software validation work, the other things that you have to do that would be standard in the pharma industry aren't common to device makers who are primarily looking at selling their technology at high volume to, say, hospital systems repairs. So you have, to, you have to meet in the middle from time to time. It may be that there's a really promising technology you want to ex explore, um, but holding it instantly to the standard of 
you know, something that you would submit to the agency is, is impractical. So you have to do some exploratory studies. You have to partner with these companies and figure out, and we're often the intermediary doing that, how to get their processes and practices to where they need to be over time. So to your question about the right stakeholders, you need people who can be pragmatic about that around the table in the qualification process. If you bring in um, uh, an, an auditor or another expert who really doesn't understand that balance or isn't familiar at all with what you're trying to accomplish or the type of technologies you're going to use, it's, it's going to be difficult to a disaster. Um, however, there are very often really you know, smart, curious QA people who engage with the business, who understand the objectives, are realistic about the risk balance that we're dealing with, and, and they're tremendous partners. And I've been fortunate to work with a number of people like that. Um, but I think that the expectations management about what we're trying to do, the, the risk management conversation between you know, the, the owners of the study, the QA people, and the, and the partners, it, it's absolutely crucial to getting that right and, um, and, and delivering something that's really going to add sustainable value to the company. No, so true. And I, and I think, you know, just from, from, my, from where I sit, I mean, I feel like that there's a greater recognition of what you described, that there is a meet, a meet in the middle and a, and a co-creation or co-development. Um, there's an openness to that, I think, now that wasn't present maybe 10 years ago. Um, it, it feels that way. I don't know if you felt that from your end of things, but it feels that way from where I sit. Yeah, I, I, you know, and I'm actually, again, I'm, I'm almost really surprised when sometimes I see people go too far, which is the just throw a Fitbit in a trial. Like that's, yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't get what causes people to think that that is is, is going to be that smart for them over time. But, but the co-creation and even the, the FDA, to the extent that you know they they see some of what we do, and, and certainly you see what they talk about publicly. There's an acknowledgement that that people um, a should be more creative in ways that are beneficial to, to patients and B that, yeah, there's no, there's no perfect manual for doing this. It's a collaborative process. So even when it comes to engaging with the agency, you know, it's, it's no different than the way in which you take your clinical development plans to them for counsel. If you're going to introduce a new endpoint or a new technology, don't be shy, you know, be, be honest about what you think the best way is to, to make it fit guidance documents that weren't written with these technologies in mind. It's not the first time that's happened in our industry. And so I, I think to your point, the lessons of the last 10 years or so have caused people to realize that technological innovations happen all the time in healthcare. And guidance is not updated nearly fast enough. So, you, so it's, a, it's an iterative process. It's a negotiation. It's collaboration. Right, so I'm going to be I'm going to be mindful of time and only ask you one more question, Chris. And this is one that, that you know I think, based on your you know, your your past experiences and you know at Merck and HR and you know now building the team at Connecta, I think this is extremely apropos. Um, if you had one piece of advice for the professionals um, that we have in the class today that are you know in different stages of their career in drug development um, and you know just thinking about their you know their evolution what would it be what would it be that you would you know you would give folks in terms of advice on how to how to you know how to view their career and how to steer their career yeah so this is something that that I feel strongly about based on I'll tell you it's based on my own personal experience in terms of my career but also certainly from the HR and executive roles I've had it's an observation that I've seen in, in terms of how a lot of people have very successfully developed their careers so I, I suspect that many of you like 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 me at, at certain points in my career want to do one of two things or both um, you you want to move broadly 
um, beyond the your initial area of expertise or, or where you may have kind of started in your career, and you may want to move quickly. You may want to move accelerate um, to higher levels of the organization faster than your peers. For me, I can look at four jobs in my career that were the most meaningful opportunities I had and, and the best development opportunities. I've had other opportunities, but there were four that were most meaningful. And in each of those four cases, I was um, not – I did not meet all the qualifications for the job, and I was, uh, in most cases, not the first candidate for the job. And they were, so they were significant stretch assignments. I got those assignments um, because I'd, I'd spent the time um, to build relationships and credibility with the people who would sponsor me for those roles. And I, I think people hear relationships or they hear networking, and, and they often think of things that are social or transactional. I think that's a very small part of relationships and networking. For, for me, it was finding areas where I wanted to work. You know, I, I said to myself when I was at Merck that I, I realized I really wanted to work with the research laboratories. So I raised my hand and found opportunities to go work on projects where I could deliver something um, that benefited the research laboratories. That experience built, built relationships and built credibility from people that saw what I could deliver that caused me to get an opportunity to go over and be part of that uh, that leadership team, um, because there was a, a sense of credibility that allowed someone to make a bet on me that um, they wouldn't have otherwise just by looking at my resume um, or, or, or seeing, you know, the, the, the things that were the traditional boxes that were ticked. And then that goes, that's true all the way through being given the opportunity uh, to take funding from Merck's Venture Fund and, and go build this company. Um, it, I don't have the obvious qualifications to say, gee, he's going to be this successful CEO of a digital health startup, um, but I had experience working with the people who were the investors, and, and that experience and credibility is what, what gave me the opportunity to do this. So, and, and this isn't just for me. I've watched other people very successfully broaden their careers into new areas um, that might have not been obvious or accelerate fast past their peers because they're willing to raise their hand, um, they're, they're willing to stretch themselves, and they're willing to demonstrate and prove that they can do things that wouldn't necessarily be obvious. So I'd suggest that, that the folks in your class think about that and where they have the opportunity to do that. Because while pharma can sometimes try to pigeonhole you and healthcare in general, I think there are many cases where you look at people having the opportunity to be broad and flex and work on different kinds of projects. So where you see those opportunities, jump on them. Great. Excellent advice, and thank you for sharing that with me, and thank you for sharing that with the class. And uh, you know, on behalf of the class and, and on myself personally, Chris, I wanted to thank you for, for taking the time today um, to share your thoughts on, on everything we covered. I think it was an excellent conversation, and I'm, I'm confident that the class is going to get a lot of value out of listening to this podcast, and we'll probably you know, save it and re-listen to it many times. I appreciate that, Dennis. Well, I hope you all have a great summer. All right. Thanks, Chris. All right, everybody, that's the conclusion of this podcast. Tune in to the next episode, and uh, we'll leave you there. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.